Thank you for tuning in to Talkline Network Radio, America's longest-running Jewish broadcast network, the voice of the Jewish community. Welcome to the podcast. And now... Our final stretch, Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson and our guests were looking at Tisha B'Av and what we should be commemorating and some of the things that we should really be thinking about on this a very, very sad day on the Jewish calendar, which, as we said at the beginning, has all elements of of positivity. It's going to be called a holiday. Um, but right now we have to live, I guess, with the, the fact that it's a morning day, a very, very sad day on the, on the Jewish calendar. Maybe, Rabbi Jacobson, you get lots of different questions from different people. Um, what's some of the common questions you've gotten regarding Tisha B'Av? I was once... Uh... I was once speaking to a group of teenagers. It was during the nine days. You can hear me? Hello? Yes, I can. Go ahead. Yes. Uh-huh. And, and they were very perturbed by the fact that they couldn't eat meat. <laughs> you know, they wanted to eat meat. They wanted to have some rib steak. And uh, this was an Orthodox Jewish camp. And they couldn't eat meat. <laughs> they were very upset. And, you know, one of the boys, smart kid, he's like... I don't understand. This thing happened 1,900 years ago. And yes, it's sad and it's tragic. But why in the world, in the 21st century, I want to eat a piece of steak. I want to drink a cup of wine. <laughs> why do I have to suffer? What's the logic here? It just makes me, makes me miserable. It makes me feel like I don't like this whole religion. This is what he's, what he's sharing. And it was certainly an interesting question to ponder because... You know, for all of us who grew up in camp, we always knew the nine days were always difficult days, right? We didn't go swimming, and there were no trips, and they have to, they have to invent all these types of entertainments, and of course the music stopped playing in camp. It was just an element of a somber, solemn element. And as kids, you know, you go away in the summer, you want to have fun. It's like, why do we have to bear the burdens, like not enough Jewish suffering? I think purposely the nine days and the three weeks are in the summertime. It's not any other time. I think it's made because summertime people are more into frivolous activities and going away. So maybe it's to bring a somber note during this time period. Right. Yeah. So, so as somebody once told me, you know, we finally have a few weeks in the summer. <laughs> right. We could relax. They had to ruin that. So I, I looked at these kids and I said, you know, it's a good question. It's an important question. And I'm just going to share with you one thought. And I saw that it resonated. It resonated with them. And I said, listen, I just want you to understand what we're doing right now. We live almost 2,000 years later, literally. What happened over the last 2,000 years? What happened? Everything changed. <laughs> I mean, the changes in terms of civilization on our planet in the last 2,000 years were incredible. I mean, just the changes in the last 100 years are mind-boggling, never mind the last 500 years, 1,000 years, 2,000 years. You know, America is a few hundred years old. <laughs> French Revolution, a few hundred years. And you're dealing here with a people that's thousands of years old. And I said, listen, we could ignore what happened, and we can eat meat, and we can drink wine, and we can take haircuts, and we can uh, enjoy water sports and so forth. But I want you to know the gift you would be giving up. The gift that you would be giving up is a link to a story that began 4,000 years ago, and it's still going strong. 
You know, you could look at yourself as an isolated young man or woman growing up in the United States of America, trying to create a life for yourself. Or you could see yourself in the context of an eternal and timeless people that for thousands of years has survived through thick and thin, through every conceivable crisis and tragedy, and yet emerged with strong families and a strong identity and strong values with a vision to transform the landscape of planet Earth, literally, to fill this world with divine awareness like the water covers the sea. A nation that in every generation attracted the hate and the venom of the most evil and heinous dictators, tyrants, despots, cruel monarchs and governors, as it still attracts the venom of those people, whether in Iran or Syria or Afghanistan or Pakistan, et cetera, et cetera, Gaza. It tells you about the power of this people, the sacredness of the people, the holiness of the people, a people that literally in every generation stood at the forefront of the moral voice, the moral conversation, leading and inspiring the moral conversation of mankind. And I said, I look at this custom not to eat meat as basically a statement. We're not living in a vacuum. We are continuing a story. The Jews who were murdered 2,000 years ago are living in us. They're living in our shuls, in our study halls, in our homes, in our minds, in our texts, in our conversations. And during those nine days, when they were slain mercilessly, I could make believe like nothing happened. It's 2,000 years comfortably in America. We can all eat steak with ketchup and french fries and add some sushi and a cup of wine. But I say, you know what? I would prefer to say, no, these nine days are meaningful to me because when my ancestors suffered so much during these nine days, I'm alive, thank God we're alive. But you know what? I won't touch that piece of steak just to pay tribute to all those Jews and say that I will continue their story. And I said, I think that powerful connection, it's worth to maintain it, even if I have to sacrifice a rib steak for supper. Now, well, you, you know what? And what did they say? They were like, their applause. They gave me such an applause, and I realized, you know, Herman Wook. You remember Herman Wook? The sure, the great, great, great writer. Yeah, right. So Herman Wook in the 1950s once tells Lubavitcher Rebbe, of blessed memory, to Lubavitcher Rebbe, I'm listening to your vision for American Jews. Do you think you're dreaming? you think you can tell American Jews to do anything? This is the 1950s. And the Rebbe tells them, Mr. Wook, he says, American youth, you can't tell them to do anything. You can explain to them to do everything. And I realized that when we speak to the souls of our children, they get it. I could have told them, you know, you're just a bunch of spoiled brats. This is the law in Shulchan Aruch, and just listen to your elders and stop asking stupid bratty, narcissistic questions. And then they would have said, okay, you know, another one. <laughs> another rabbi who doesn't understand us. But when I spoke to their souls, to their idealism, they were in. They got it. It was very moving for me to see that. Yeah, tell me, in the few moments we have remaining, is I know that we carry the CM every day from the National Committee for the Friends of Jewish Education, but from what I understand, Lubavitch is not big in having meat seed, where you have here a CM and eat meat. Because you can right. do it, you so, can do it every day. I mean, you can have a seam and have meat every day. 
There's, so there's a way of getting around it. I live here in Muncie and I have two neighbors and they made a seum on different nights and they had huge parties with meat and wine. It happens to be that the custom of the fifth Chabad Rebbe, whose name was Rabbi Shalom Ber Shneus and the Rebbe Rashab, he died in 1920, he had a custom of making a seum every night, but he still would not eat meat and wine. This was his stringency that became part of Chabad tradition. But that's just a particular stringency. Halachically, you're allowed to eat meat. And that's what they do in many camps and in many communities. Right, so maybe the but solution the point, to the, 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 point, the point, point is that you know, you want you you're teaching them a lesson. That's what you're trying to teach them. I would teach I would say them a lesson. That's number one, and number two, it's about it's the, it's the idea that even when they're eating meat with the seum, they're eating meat because in a way that seum, the fact that they finished the tractate of Gemara, is really the defeat of the destruction. It's the defeat of Rome. It's the defeat of Babylonia. The fact that Jews are learning Gemara today. What are the chances, right? An Aramaic text. <laughs> An Aramaic text composed 1,700 years ago. The syntax, the structure, the grammar, the language, the style, completely alien <laughs> to the sensibilities and to the flavors and to the laws of literature and the styles of literature of the 21st century. And yet thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands of Jews pick up the text and they discuss it and they learn it and they argue and they ask and they answer and they finish it and they make a theme. That itself represents Netzach Yisrael, the eternity of Israel, and the defeat of those forces that undermine and destroy the Beis HaMikdash. You know, the Talmud says in Gitten that Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, who was the leading sage of the time, he met Vespasian, and Vespasian was impressed by him, and he asked him what he would like as a favor, and Rabbi Yochanan asked him three things, a doctor for Rebzadik, and to spear the dynasty of Ram Gamliel, and also to spear the city of Yavna, where there was the yeshiva, the Sanhedrin, the yeshiva. And people were critical of them, Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Yosef. They said, you should have asked them for the temple. Berchanan and Zakeh thought that would be ineffective, so he just asked them for Yavna. But one of the fascinating things is that through that, really, Rome signed its own death certificate. <laughs> Vespasian didn't realize that by giving Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakeh permission to keep the Torah alive in Yavna, he was guaranteeing the timeless eternity of the Jewish people. So this very same man who burned Jerusalem, Vespasian and his son Titus, who did did everything we're mourning today, came from Vespasian and Titus, he was the same man who also ultimately wrote the death sentence of the Roman Empire and the Certificates of survival for the Jewish people. Except they reneged on it. They reneged on because they try to eradicate the the study of Torah by sixty years later. That's what right, led to the Barakah right. revolt, where they revolted right. against the excesses of the exactly. Roman barbarism, but exactly. also stopping. So they went back on right. it. Exactly that the Talmud says the Sanhedrin had to move into ten different locations, go into exile, and ultimately it was dissolved. Ultimately it was dissolved, but the Obviously, the learning was not. And the fact is, you know, uh, the fact is that it's, it's, it's really incredible. It's incredible. Rabbi Akiva was murdered. Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel was murdered. Literally, Rabbi Shmuel Kayin Gadol was murdered. Rabbi Hanina ben Shadim was murdered. Rabbi Yudha ben Baba, the tenth. And yet we learn their teachings. Rabbi Akiva's ideas are on the lips of every Jewish child. It means he's, he, which means he's still alive. He's still alive. Rabbi Roger, we're out of time, so we appreciate your 
really being with, giving us some, really some great insight into Tisha B'Av. People can go to the yeshiva.net. Thank you. My honor and privilege. And my, we, honor, my honor and privilege. And may we begin, we, be, we spoke about the seeds of redemption. So the birth of Mashiach on Tisha B'Av. So after so many years, may we experience that birth in a very real and vivid way, personally and cosmically. Amen, amen. Rabbi Y.Y. Jackson, noted R-rated scholar, and you can catch him at yeshiva.net. You're listening to Talk Line with Zev Brenner, America's premier Jewish broadcast on the air since 1981. And now your host. It's Tisha Night, and we want to explore the deeper meaning of Tisha What does it mean in today's contemporary world and society where we have, thank God, a state of Israel, but we also have challenging anti-Semitism, Jew hatred. Rabbi Y.Y. Y. Jacobson is a noted scholar, educator, and uh, he is sought after the world, and that's why we invite him to join us on this special Tish Above broadcast. So, Rabbi Y.Y. Y. Jacobson, noted educator, speaker, lecturer, we appreciate you being here with us. What goes through your mind? Thank you, thank you. This, why is this Tish Above different? This, I guess, the first Tish Above that's post-COVID, so I think it's probably people getting back to some sense of normal, but it's not really the same way that it was pre-COVID. Right, for sure. Last Tish Above was uh, unique because... Uh, as the opening of the Book of Lamentations, which we just read tonight, Eicha Yashva Vodod Ha'ira Basiyam, those moving words of Jeremiah that he wrote during the destruction of the First Temple. Alas, how a city flooded with people, flooded with, with so many Jews, pulsating with so much vibrancy, sits Vodod, it sits, it sits lonely, it sits alone. Certainly last... Uh, year there was a lot of loneliness this year i think thank god you know a lot of communities are coming back together not everywhere but in my neck of the woods a lot of people were there tonight for Meir van Echa. but i think that the concept of loneliness that he speaks about is really something that describes one of the most powerful ideas of the day and that is that judaism jewish theology jewish law gave the Jewish people a day in which we literally dedicate the day to respect and to embrace and to show compassion for our pain, for our brokenness, for our traumas individually and collectively. You know, there's two schools of thought. One school of thought says, just move on with life, put one foot ahead of the other foot, and put a smile on your face and be productive and don't dwell on the pain. And then there's a different philosophy in life. No, you know, get into the pain and figure it out so that you could spit it out. And I think Tisha B'Av teaches us something very powerful that's maybe one of the key points in Jewish resilience. We dedicate a full day in which we honor the fact that there's brokenness in which we're encouraged to cry, to weep, to mourn, to grieve, to be able to grieve for things that we dreamt about, for dreams shattered, for lives lost, for innocence taken from us, each in their own individual, every person with their own pain, every family with their own pain, and collectively with our pain. 
And then a day after Tisha B'Av, we say, and now we go back to rebuilding a fractured world. And we do this every single year. It's a very powerful testimony to the human spirit that it's important to be able to spend one full day, 24 hours, literally dedicated to the tears and to the pain of people. You have to have compassion for it. You have to respect it. You have to process it. And you have to be able to sit with it. Be able to sit with that part of us that's Echa Yashra Vada, that's lonely. And then from that place, we can look into that pain and say, together with this pain, we believe in the unshakable eternity of goodness and of the power of the soul. You know, as you were speaking, Rabbi Jacobson, I was just thinking how it's not only the day after, but even on Tisha B'Av itself, here you are, halachic chatzos, halachic middays, let's say it's one o'clock today, and here you are, you're not supposed to be sitting on a chair, you're mourning, then all of a sudden, one minute later, comes one o'clock, you're allowed to sit on a chair, you have some aspects of a moed, you don't say takma, you can put on talis and film, it's within the same day of the greatest despair, there's also the seeds of great hope. And it changes just like that. Yes, absolutely. And I think, Zev, that, you know, this really embodies, you know, Mark Twain asked that famous question, what happened to the Egyptian, Babylonian, Assyrian, Greek, Roman empires that have all been relegated to the dustbin of history? And the tiny Jewish nation survives, outlives them all, and thrives, despite our challenges, despite our problems, which are serious and I think this juxtaposition, this fusion of two realities that we live with, and we don't try to amputate one of them. The very same day when we sit on the ground, put ashes on our head, dim the lights, and explore thousands of years of pain, bloodshed, suffering, and destruction, we then rise up again, we declare Nachem, and as the Talmud puts it, the Talmud says an unbelievable story in Jerusalem Talmud tractate, Tanit, that there was a Jew plowing his field in the land of Israel on the 9th of Av, on the day of the destruction. And there was a Bedouin Arab who understood the language of animals. And when this Jew's ox grunted, the Bedouin said, stop plowing your field because your temple has just been destroyed. A moment later, the ox gave another grunt, and he said, you could resume your plowing, because your Mashiach was just born. And what does that really mean? What does that really mean? Of course, this, this Talmudic story became the central point in the great debate between Nachmanides Ramban and his student, the Jewish apostate Pablo Christianity. Pablo Cristiani in the 1260s in Spain. You see when the Messiah was born, of course, but that's a different subject, fascinating subject as is. But the great mystics pointed out over the generations that the Jewish people understood that the seeds of redemption lay and are impregnated in the very darkness of exile. In other words, every crisis is also an opportunity. It doesn't eliminate the pain of the crisis. But when one window closes, one door closes, another one opens. The Jews had the ability to be able to say, we may not always know why, and we certainly feel the pain, but we always know that there's some hidden, hidden light 
an opportunity to explore so that we can create a rebirth, a rejuvenation from that crisis. You know, I always say that in China, they say, why are the Chinese around for 5,000 years? Because in China, the same character they use for crisis is the same character they use for opportunity. But in Hebrew, it's much better. The word we use for a breakdown is called mashber, from the word shvira, brokenness, fractured, mashber. When somebody has a breakdown, they say he had a mashber. It's the same word that the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, uses for a woman giving birth, Yoshevet al-Hamashber, the birthing stool, is called a mashber. Because in Judaism, every time we're broken, it's not just to break us. It's because brokenness allows a deeper awareness, a deeper light to come in. You know, the cracks are what allow the light to come in. So therefore, as you said, on the very same day of destruction, we also feel and experience the birth of a new reality, of a renaissance, of a, re, a rejuvenation. And Zev, if you study Jewish history, I always tell this to my students, it's an unbelievable fact. Look at every one of the darkest periods of Jewish history and you'll see that it was followed by an incredible outburst of creativity of the highest caliber. For example, take the destruction of the first temple. It was Today, it's hard for us to understand, you know, that in the year 586 BCE, when the Babylonians destroyed the temple and decimated the first Jewish commonwealth, the crisis was unprecedented. It's the first time since Moses, Jews don't have a land. They don't have a temple. They don't have an epicenter. And that's when they invent, imagine the concept of a shul. There's no concept of a shul till then. It was Ezekiel, Ezekiel, who witnessed the destruction. He is the one who, in his book, Yecheskel, introduces Mikdash Ma'at, the miniature sanctuary. And the Jews then developed the idea that God could be found wherever we let him in. And they started to create gatherings dedicated to prayer, to learning, to helping people, which today became the immortal institution of the Jewish shul, the Beis HaKnesses, the Beis HaMedrash, the Yeshiva, the Jewish community center where we gather, the idea that divinity is not relegated to one geographic location. This came at the heels of horrible, horrible tragedy. The destruction of the second temple, which till the Holocaust was the worst calamity that could befall the Jewish people. And suddenly, right after that, nobody understands even why. How and why? You have the explosion of what we call today Torah Shabal Peh the oral tradition, the entire tradition of the Mishnah, the Babylonian Talmud, the Jerusalem Talmud, the Sifra, Sifri, Tosefta, Mechilt, all the Midrashim, the Zohar, the Kabbalistic works. Major, major explosion of, of scholarship, of creativity, of, of the entire body of Jewish law and depth. It happens at the heels of an incredible tragedy. You have the Crusades in the 11th century, the first one, 1096, and in its very aftermath, you have the explosion of, of Ashkenazic scholarship of Rashi and Tosfos and his entire family and all of their students in, in France, Europe, England, Western Europe, you know, at the heels of the Spanish, the Spanish expulsion on Tisha B'Av, 1492, you have this blossoming of the whole mystical tradition of Judaism, 
the Kabbalah and at the Shabsi Tzvi converts to Islam in 1666. He was born on Tisha B'av. That's why he could call himself the Mashiach, a false Mashiach. He converts to Islam in 1666. It's right after 1648-49, the Chmelanetsky pogroms massacred hundreds of thousands of Jews throughout Poland. It was one of the lowest moments in Jewish history. And literally, a few decades later, you have the development, the birth of a major movement that changed the landscape of Judaism, the Balshemtov, the Hasidic movement, and in the Lithuanian world, the whole yeshiva movement. And now, just two mortgages ago, after the greatest calamity to befall us, the Holocaust, and I'm just coming home now from a lecture. I was sitting at a lecture we had in our shul of a Holocaust survivor. And uh, he was telling, you know, all the children the stories and showing them the number. And today it's rare, management. This is AM620 WSNR, Jersey. Go ahead, Rabbi Y.Y. Y. Jacobson. Sorry. So after such destruction, I mean, look what happens. Jewish people, men, women, and children, they rebuild the Jewish people, they rebuild the Jewish world, first of all in Israel, of course. Today that we have close to 7 million Jews living in Israel, let's not underestimate the miracle. And throughout the whole world, an unprecedented, vibrant rejuvenation, rejuvenation as in J-E-W, of Jewish life, of Jewish spirit, of Jewish communities, of Jewish education. How does all of this happen? It happens because the Jewish people have in their DNA this conviction that somehow we don't just try to live through a crisis and go back. Rather, from every crisis we know we have to emerge deeper, wiser, stronger, more blessed, more creative, and more empowered. And you're absolutely correct in that because after considering, in fact, there are probably more Jews killed in the Holocaust than in the destruction of the Second Temple. And Indeed. And you saw that right away, right after the Holocaust, you had the creation of the State of Israel, where today you have so many Jews, and you also have the biggest amount of Torah learning is taking place in Israel today. So you have that. Indeed. According to Josephus, according to Josephus, it seems like during the destruction of the Second Temple, could be there were one million Jews murdered, some say two million Jews, which, of course, is astronomical, astronomical numbers. And until the Holocaust, you know, that eclipsed every other tragedy because of the sheer quantity and quality. But the Holocaust, of course, was unprecedented. It, it remains the greatest black hole in the history of humanity and in the history of the Jewish people. And, and, you know, there was, there's a Holocaust survivor. He should be well and healthy. His name is Rabbi Yechiel ben Sian Fishoff. A Gerachosid, a survivor. And he once told me, he said, Rabbi Jacobson, he says, I want to tell you the miracle of my generation. And he said this. He says, the Talmud says in Tractate Sanhedrin, Chananya, Mashal, and Azariah were those three assistants of the Babylonian emperor Nebuchadnezzar. They were talented, brilliant, handsome, wise young Jews that he took with him to Babylonia. And they became extremely instrumental in the Babylonian culture and the monarchy and the palace. And of course, they didn't want to bow down to Vuchadnezzar as a god. And in the famous story, he, th he throws them into the fiery furnace and they, they survive. In the book of Daniel, Daniel, 
The Talmud says, you know, after that story, we never hear about them. It's like almost they, they, they disappear from, from the history of the Jewish people. We never hear about what happened to these three great people who just survived, you know, the impossible conditions. And there's different opinions. One opinion, Rabbi Yochanan says in, in, in Tractate Sanhedrin, the 11th chapter, he says, I want to tell you what happened. <laughs> they made Aliyah. They went back to the land of Israel. Nasu Nashim. They got married. And they gave birth to sons and to daughters. And he looked at me, he said, and that's the greatest story. After coming out of a furnace of a living fire, they reestablished a normal life. They went back to their land, they got married, and they built families. And then he looked at me and he said, the greatest miracle about our generation is at least so many of us tried to create normal lives. We got married, we built families, we went back there to Israel, we rebuilt there to Israel. And it's true, we have to look at our parents and our grandparents, and I know about the trauma of the survivors and their children and their grandchildren, epigenetics, no simple thing at all. And there's consequences. Hitler's hand, sadly, is a very long but look at the miracle that most of them should believe in life and in love and in family and in success. It's incredible. And as I, I was speaking once at a Shavah with survivors uh, quite a few years ago, there were Auschwitz survivors there, and I said, you know, it's not even like Hanani, Mishal, and Azariah. Hanani, Mishal, and Azariah were plucked out of that furnace unscathed. But the survivors today, they have survived, but most of their families remained in the gas chambers, were burnt in the crematoriums. They were not saved. These were a few people, Ud small, small pockets of Jewish survivors, and yet they had the courage and the tenacious, the, the, the tenacious faith and conviction and resilience to say, we will emerge as the most powerful, empowered, loving nation, committed to life, love, morality, kindness, Yiddishkeit. And, and we have to be grateful because these are, these are timeless, eternal heroes. It was so, so well said because they had a choice. Even getting revenge, the biggest revenge was is not going after the Nazis and the criminals, but by having children. And that really is putting Hitler to death. And by the way, as we break, you know, there's something that stands out in my mind is that when the Hitler died in the bunker and they found the artifacts that were there, I don't know if you're aware of that among the artifacts they found was a Gemara Pesachim, the tract yes. of, of, of Pesachim, which deals with, you know, with the Jewish people. And he was killed uh, April 20th, which is around Pesach time. Right, so right. he wanted to bury the Jewish people. And the Gemara, what ended up burying him was the Gemara Pesachim, which deals with Pesach and the liberation of the Jewish people. I just find that that's, that the irony is there. And today the biggest revenge on Hitler is having so many more Jews repopulating, giving birth, staying committed to Judaism, that I think is the antidote and the answer out of the out of the Holocaust, out of the ashes of destruction, which we also learned in the, in the First and Second Temples, is that dedicated Jewish spirit and the Jewish life. That's the answer. Indeed, indeed. Rabbi, I heard once... Yeah. Are we breaking? No, go ahead, and then we'll, then we'll break. 
I once heard from uh, Professor Eliezer Wiesel, Eli Wiesel, Zechreiner Levracha, who was, of course, in Auschwitz and in Buchenwald, and the Nobel Prize laureate for peace, and uh, one of the very well-known Holocaust survivors and writers about the Holocaust. And he was a close friend of my father, who you interviewed many times on this show, the late Gershon Jacobson, the editor of the Algemeiner Journal. They were very close friends because they were both journalists. They worked together for many, many years in journalism. And uh, I heard this from my father. I heard this from Elie Wiesel. Elie Wiesel refused to get married after the war because he felt, and one can really understand him, that it would be so unfair and unjust to raise a family in a world, to put it in his words, to raise children in a world that was deaf to the cry of one and a half million children sent to gas chambers. How can I trust such a world and bring in a new generation of Jewish children. I do not want to subject them to such a horrific fate, which can't even be described by the human pen. And he felt that he would be much better off living as a journalist, as a thinker, as an essayist, as a novelist, as a writer, and dying a lone man. And uh, he credited another fascinating personality, the Lubavitcher Rebbe of blessed memory, who spent hours, I heard this from Wiesel, he said, we spent hours, late nights in the 1960s, and the Rebbe said to me, he said, Professor Wiesel, all of your books, all of your lectures are amazing and incredible and important, but the real, real memory and revenge against Hitler, as you say, is, he said, if you'll find the old Jewish woman and you'll get married and you'll bring a new generation to this world, he said, that will be the ultimate victory of, of goodness against evil. And indeed, he obeyed this, uh, this suggestion of the Rebbe. He married his, uh, his wife, may she be well. And I heard from him that at the wedding, you know, people sent telegrams and bank, bank uh, different bouquets. He said the most beautiful bouquet of flowers was sent to him by the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And a year later, he had his son, Elisha, who was born around the same time I was born, and Elie Wiesel said, I came to your bris, and your parents came to my son's <laughs> bris, and he named his son for his father, who perished in Auschwitz, Elisha. Who we just had on there just the other day, who did a rally for Israel in Washington, right. D.C. because of a nether or a vow that he made. Right. Um, which so we shouldn't take for granted, you know, that these people got married, and they created a future, even though it was so difficult, because, you know, today everybody speaks about trauma. Who can even imagine the trauma of a 16-year-old, of a 15-year-old who watched their mothers, fathers, brothers, baby brothers, baby sisters, grandparents, uncles and aunts go up in the smoke of the crematorium? I mean, who can even imagine this type of trauma? And the fact that they emerged from it, not unscathed, not unscathed, they all suffered. They all suffered terribly. Some of them, the screaming during the nights, and some of them by not having the ability to express emotions, and by some of them becoming very rough and tough, not unscathed, but nonetheless so committed to the eternity of their people and to the legacy of their parents who were decimated. I mean, tonight is a night to salute all of these people and be, express our gratefulness and gratitude for the greatest gift that they have given us, the gift of life and the gift of resilience. Today, the, in psychology, they speak about epigenetics, you know, that we carry our traumas in our genes and we pass them on to our children. 
And, you know, and psychotherapists and doctors are explaining today that a lot of the trauma that our youth is facing is not their own. It may be from epigenetics. It may be from their grandparents, their great-grandparents, their great-grandparents. 2,000 years of trauma may be coming out now in the Jewish world. But I always tell my, my students, I say, listen, that's true. It's absolutely true. But let's remember, our genes did not only inherit the trauma. Our genes also carry the faith, the fortitude, the wisdom, the, the conviction of 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years. It's all there in our genes. Same people, same genes, same nation. Our guest is Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson, one of the top Jewish scholars in Torah, Jewish mysticism. He's a very sought-after speaker in the Jewish world today, dealing with topics of spirituality. He's the first rabbi ever to be invited by the Pentagon to deliver the religious keynote for the United States Military Chief of Chaplains. He also founder and is a dean of the yeshiva.net. When we come back, we continue our conversation. We're looking Tisha B'Av, the saddest day on the Jewish calendar. And uh, if you have any questions, you have any thoughts about Tisha B'Av, here is somebody that you can get some good answers from. Talkline Radio and TV with Zeb Brenner is just phenomenal. Everybody concerned about the Jewish community should listen and watch. He has the best guests. He asks the most interesting questions. He's always so well prepared. It's talk radio and television from a Jewish point of view at its very best. To advertise on the Talkline Network and Talkline's email and social media blasts reaching over 70,000 people, please call 212-769-1925. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Extension 100. That's 212-769-1925, extension 100. Or email info at talklinenetwork.com. Are you interested in hosting your own radio show and podcast, or perhaps a TV program? Talkline Network can help you get on the air from one hour weekly to 24 hours a day. Ideal for ethnic, foreign language, medical, business, and religious broadcasting. We also have full-time radio stations for lease, as well as FM HD channels. For more information, please call 212-769-1925. That's 212-769-1925. Or email zevbrenner at gmail.com. You're listening to Talk Line with Zev Brenner, America's premier Jewish broadcast on the air since 1981. And now your host. Our special guest here on Tisha B'Av Night is Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson, a noted scholar, lecturer, specialist in Jewish mysticism. Uh, he gave. He was the first rabbi to be invited by the Pentagon to deliver the religious keynote to the United States military. Uh, he was involved with the Algamander Journal, which was started by his father, Gershom Jacobson, a blessed memory. Did I ever tell you, Rabbi Jacobson, that I was in Uzbekistan in the 1990s, and I was in Tashkent or Bukhari. I forgot where I was. And a man walks over to me and he goes, where are you from? I go, I'm from New York City. He goes, maybe you know my nephew. I said, there's only 1.2 million Jews in the metropolitan New York area. <laughs> Who is your nephew? He goes, do you know Gershom Jacobson, the editor of the Algamander Journal? And I said, of course. And I took a picture and I gave it to your father. So uh, uh, so you have relatives that, that were in Uzbekistan in the 1990s. I don't know if this yeah, is there. Yeah, yeah, but, uh, yeah. But we're looking at my father's. My father's family came from Georgia, South Russia, and my mother was also born there. So, uh, yeah, we're connected to that part of the world, that zip code. 
Right, 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 right. There were more Jews there, but uh, they left. We were talking about resiliency and the and the Holocaust. You know, I'm struck by a story that you may have heard, but I, I just find the story so fascinating because lots of Jews that went through the Holocaust, some of them turned more religious, some unfortunately turned less religious because of their experiences. And the story is told about the Dean of American Orthodoxy, Rabbi Eli Mel- Rabbi Silver. And yeah, he was... Laser. The Le- rabbi of Eliezer yeah. Silver, who was there, and uh, he wanted to have a minion for Mincha. I forgot which DP camp he was in. So he says to a man, will you join us for Mincha? And the man says, absolutely not. And he goes, why? He goes, well, I was in the concentration camp, and there was a man who was smuggling a sitter, and he was charging people a piece of bread to daven from the sitter. I don't want any part of such religion. So Rabbi Silver said, why are you looking at the man who sold his sitter for a piece of bread. Why not look at the people willing to give up a piece of bread to use the sitter? And the man said, you're right, he went to Davin Mincha, that was Simon Wiesenthal. Yes, incredible story. It's an incredible story. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that Simon Wiesenthal, one of the last years of his life, the European, there's an organization of European rabbis, a group of European rabbis, and they honored Simon Wiesenthal. And they gave him a prayer book, and at the at the dinner he shared this this amazing story, which I think happened in Bergen Belsen. Okay, it's amazing, but but it shows also it's everything is perspective. You can look at Tishabov as being a day of just despair and and terrible calamities. You can also look at at Tishabov as a day with this tremendous potential. In fact, Rabbi Daniel Melman uh, he said that the word shachar is black. You just give a little kvash, you change it a little bit, that word shachar turns into shachar, which is morning. Shachar. So which is morning, dawn break. Alot exactly. shachar. So right. it's, it all the pers- mystics say that right before dawn break is the darkest moment, so the two become one. The shachar comes from the shachar. Now we've been focused... And I would say oh, psychologically too, you know, they say, there's a famous expression, the way out of pain is through pain. The way out of tear is through tears is through tears, meaning when we when we suppress our pain or we repress our pain and we we can't look at it we can't deal with it, it remains it remains in our body and it's stuck there, and it leaks out in all types of dysfunctional ways. The famous title of a book: When you bury your emotions live, they don't die, <laughs> and as they say today, the body really keeps the score. So I think it's one of the brilliant ideas of Tishabov that our sages and our prophets in the days of yore understood. Yes, life, we don't do Tishabov every day of the year. We live, we love, we celebrate, we sing, we dance, we eat, we drink, and we, we, we continue building, building a godly and holy and moral world. But there's a full day that's just dedicated to be able to experience whatever is going on without judgment, the real grief of the day. And, and on this day, we, you know, in the kinos, in the lamentations, in the poems that we read on Tisha B'av, we go through so many different chapters of Jewish history in addition to the destruction of both temples that happened on Tisha B'av. So it's really, they like dedicate, and said on this day, cry it out, <laughs> feel it, feel it, experience it. Respect it, have compassion for it, pay tribute to it. And then from that, take your energy and your resources and, uh, and continue to build with your faith and with your conviction. You know, 
and I, 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 I'm developing this thought because they say that the one day a year when Sutton, the evil forces, have no control over Jewish people, of course, is Yom Kippur. The flip side is Tisha B'Av, where he has complete control. Look what havoc that he's done, whether it's the destruction of the First and Second Temple, the Crusaders, the Holocaust, the destruction of Beitar, etc. So many calamities happen. And uh, that's uh, it takes place now. I believe it's the Medrash that says, or maybe it's the Zohar. You would know better. That says that there's a pasuk, there's a verse in the Torah that says that the Bnei Yisrael don't eat es gid hanasha. They don't need the the sinew of the of the flesh of an animal. And the word aleph sayatika sayatika that w- the word s comes to teach us something. It stands for av 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 tisha, the ninth day of av. So therefore, it corresponds to Tisha B'Av, and from what I've also seen, I believe, in the Medrash, is this is the night that Yaakov wrestled with the angel of Esav, and he won, even though the angel no. wounded him with the progeny with his kids, but he still came out victorious, and that night was Tisha B'Av. So that's why God picked Tisha B'Av as a day of Jewish suffering, because built into the very day is the victory that Yaakov had over the angel. So therefore, um, you know, that's why it was picked. So therefore, we can call that strength from this day right and and just to, to extend that that beautiful thought is in the morning that mysterious angel and adversary tells jacob leave me alone let me go free it's morning i gotta go and jacob says i will not let you go until you bless me which is quite of a strange comment imagine a gangster attack somebody and they're trying to kill you all night and then they maim you and they dislocate your sciatic nerve, at the end of the night, you say, wait, 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 before you go, I want a bracha, I want a blessing. That's not what you do. Either call the police, call 911, run away, punch them in the face. What's this What's this statement that Jacob is making? But really, Jacob is bequeathing to the Jewish people for eternity. Maybe one of our most powerful statements, and that is, when I encounter adversity in my life, when I encounter trauma, individual trauma, collective trauma, it's not just enough for me to say, let me leave this painful moment. Jacob says, no, take it one step further. Say, I will not let you go until you bless me. When the Jewish people faced crisis throughout their history, they didn't just say, let's get over this and move on. They all emulated and paraphrased those words and that declaration of Jacob. We will not let go of this crisis, of this challenge, until we do not emerge from it more blessed, more perceptive, more wise, more invigorated, believing that within every challenge lay the seeds for a new beginning that is unprecedented and incredible. And that's why they compared redemption to birth and exile to the pangs before birth. The birth pangs of the woman are very painful. And I'm not going to be a man now talking about things I don't know about from experience. But we all understand <laughs> that giving birth is one of the most excruciatingly difficult things. And we're always grateful to our wives and our mothers for their incredible self-sacrifice. But in that pain, there's always the potential and the heralding of, of, of an incredibly new beginning. 
And that combination is such a blessed combination to be able to grieve, to be able to sob, to be able to feel the pain, and yet to know deep down that it's not here to break us. It's here to open us up to a new blessing, to a new opportunity, even if we can't always understand how and why. A wonderful, wonderful thought. I don't... You know, there's, uh, as you were talking, I was thinking the Talmud says at the end of Tractatinus that the spies came back from their tour of the land of Israel. They came back on Tishabov and they dissuaded the people from entering into the land and everybody was weeping all night because they were overtaken by national hysteria that they would go into the land and be decimated. And the Talmud says, God said, you know, you're crying tonight in vain. There's really no reason for you to cry. But one day, this is going to be a night in which you're going to cry earnestly because of the destruction. And somebody once asked me, what, what was this, an ego game? God says, oh, you're crying and you're not supposed to cry. I'm going to give you such a smack that you're going to cry for real. Like, okay, so they're crying in vain. And I think one of the powerful points is that it's actually a result. In other words, when we're overtaken by that fear, by that sense of paralysis, and we're crying for a reason that we shouldn't be crying because we have the resources to do it, the result of that is that we ultimately become paralyzed in moments when we don't have to be paralyzed. And we really experience experience difficulties that we could overcome with the right attitude and conviction. I don't know if he's the man to quote on Tishabov, Henry Ford, but he did say, whether you believe you can or you believe you can't, you're right. If I believe I can, I'm right. And if I believe I can't, I'm also right. Because my belief about what my capabilities are will determine my capabilities. So when the Jewish people are overtaken by a sense of hopelessness and despair, God forbid it could, it could, could become a self-fulfilling prophecy. And that's why the focus of all the leaders throughout all generations was understand the pain. And if you need to cry, cry, but don't allow those tears to become tears of helplessness. Allow those tears to become tears that motivate you to find your inner creativity and potential that you may have not known about. You know, when you were speaking, you remind me of a story about the Tzaddik of Jerusalem, Rabbi Ari Levine, who I recommend the book, A Tzaddik in Our Times. If you want to be inspired, wonderful, wonderful. But there's a story in there. A woman says that, you know, she cried and cried and cried for her husband. I guess he passed away. And what happened to all these tears because, you know, her husband unfortunately passed away. So Rabbi Levine very nicely, and he said to her, that God took her tears and then he saves those tears and he uses them for another occasion. And uh, so her tears don't go to waste. No tears go to waste. So when you cry from the base of ministry, even if we don't see the temple rebuilt in our times, those tears don't go to waste. They're collected and used by God. I thought that was such a beautiful thought from Rabbi Arya Levine. Indeed. You mentioned Rabbi Arya Levine. I was just at a Shabbaton with six or seven hundred Uh, couples, parents whose children are struggling. That's the common denominator of that Shabbaton. It was in the Catskills. And it was a very emotional Shabbos. These are are parents from the entire uh, spectrum of what you would call the Orthodox Jewish world. Literally the entire spectrum. And their children are struggling in different ways, different levels, different ways. And they came together to strengthen each other. 
organization called Kesher Nafshi. So I spoke Shabbos lunch, and I told them something about Rabari Levine, <laughs> and I think it's appropriate to share on Tisha B'Av. He had a student who learned by him, and the student left Judaism. He left the path of Yiddishkeit, of Jewish observance. And one day, Reb Arya was walking in Jerusalem. Reb Arya died in 1969. So this was in the 50s or in the 60s. He's walking in Jerusalem, and, and he sees from a distance the student of his, who was a tall fellow. Reb Arya Levine was a short fellow. He was a tall fellow. And the man notices that Reb Arya Levine is approaching him, and he's without a keeper. He's without a yarmulke. You know, he looks like a classical, typical Jew, Israeli secular Jew. And he doesn't want to make his teacher or himself feel awkward or uncomfortable. So he crosses the street. <laughs> so he shouldn't have to meet him. And Rabbi Levine notices him and he decides he wants to see him. And he pursues him. And he walks after him until he catches up to him. And his student is forced to stop. And Rabbi Levine says, why are you running away from me? What do you think, I'm going to bite you? And he says, Rebbe, I'll be honest with you. And he says, in Hebrew, I'll be very honest with you. I'm not wearing a kippah. I'm not wearing a yarmulke. I'm not observant. And I, I, I didn't want to embarrass you. I didn't want to humiliate you. I didn't want to feel uncomfortable myself in front of you. And uh, so I just crossed the street. And his old Rebbe looked at him and he says, listen, my dear friend, listen, my dear student, I'm a short man. Rabbi Levine was a short man. I'm a short man. I don't see above your heart. Very nice. You know, so I said it's so important. It's so important. We often judge people, you know, by external garments, which are important. They're important. But we often reduce the entire person to how they look, how they don't look, if they fit in, if they don't fit in. And we often sacrifice, we sacrifice the most important element, and that is to really tune in and become connected to the soul of the person, to the heart of the person. You know, Judaism Judaism pays tribute and finds external elements important. But when the externals become more important than what we call the pnimis, the inner foundation, the inner core, then we're in trouble. You know, you mentioned Rabbi Levine, just for audience doesn't know, he was a Jerusalemite rabbi who was went to the prisons every Shabbos to tend to the prisoners, especially those from the Uruguay and the Lechi who were incarcerated, British prisons, for, for their service to Israel. And while he came from a very religious background, and most of the others were from non-religious backgrounds, for the most part, but they loved him, so he loved them, didn't ask questions, they loved him, and he was able to communicate where he kept in touch with them. And there's such incredible stories of his devotion and their devotion to him, which I'm just going to share one short one, because on Tisha B'Av we're dealing with sinners, how people hate each other for no apparent reason. And the story is told, and you probably know this, Rabbi Y.Y. Y. Jacobson, is that he was laying the Torah in the prison, which he did every Shabbos, and I think one of the Arab guards came from the from the prison warden say that the warden wants to see you, and he ignored it. And, you know, they came again. Finally, the warden himself came. Turns out that Rabbi Levine's daughter was sick, so he left, and the people figured that he was not going to show up the next week. The next Shabbos, he shows up, and again, he laying, even though his daughter was very, very sick. So they give the first aliyah, and the, when the prisoner gets up, and he says, I donate one hour for the life of my Rebbe. And the other person gave one day and one week to the, to the, and they were willing to dedicate that 
that for their for the Rebbe. And that uh, Saturday night, that his daughter recuperated, was on the road recovery. That shows the love they had for him and he had for them, and that kind of love which we need more of because there's a divide, as you know very well, between religious and non-religious, but there really shouldn't be a divide. If we did our job properly, there would be more people that we'd be able to communicate with and not just close the door and say we're just going to tend to ourselves. We have an obligation to help other people and to be Makarov and to be their beacon of light and to show the love that Judaism really has. You have a lot of places, you have people, for example, we've covered the new TV show on Netflix, My Unorthodox Life. You have people leaving and bashing the religion, and we have to really do something more to show the beauty of what we're all about. Indeed. And I think, you know, the more one is secure in their own skin, comfortable in their own identity, and anchored in an unshakable confidence and commitment, they don't have to be deterred and overwhelmed and dismiss people who are different, who are struggling, who have different opinions. I can create space for other people. You don't shake me up because if you have a different opinion... I don't have to be judgmental and dismissive. I think judgmentalism and dismissiveness is very toxic. It doesn't help anybody, and it comes from a place of holier than thou, and it really comes from an inferiority complex. Uh, so I think people who are really confident in their own skin can really embrace people, and instead of distancing them, they could listen to them. They can show them respect. We can disagree without becoming disagreeable, and you know, the dangers among our people is not when we disagree. It's fine to disagree. It's when we stop trusting each other. It's when we can't support each other. We can't lean on each other. We always have to be able to be here for each other, even if we even if we disagree with each other. Rabbi Soloveitchik once shared, there was a story that the Tosfos brings in Tractate Menachas. The Talmud speaks about a boy who was born with two heads about Philip. So the Tosfos brings a story that there was a fellow who had two heads and his father died, and he demanded a double portion of the inheritance because he has two heads, so he's like two people, right? His father left real estate on Fifth Avenue, so he wanted a double portion of the real estate. So they came to King Solomon, and King Solomon said, let's blindfold one of the heads and pour some hot shallant on the other head, and if the blindfolded head would scream, it means it's really one person, and if not, it would be two people, and you could give him a double portion of the inheritance, and uh, Rabbi Soloveitchik said, you know, what's the point of the strange advice of King Solomon? And homiletically, Rabbi J.B. Soloveitchik said that, you know, the Jewish people don't have one head. We have many heads. <laughs> we have multiple opinions and perspectives and Welt and Schauen and vantage points. Two Jews, 19 opinions. Every Jew has a different opinion. And sometimes within the same Jew, you know, you have different opinions. Depends on the hour, depends on the day, you know, depends who you visit. He said, the problem is not that we have many heads. The problem is that if I pour hot scalding water on one head, the other head doesn't scream. As long as the other head cries out in pain, it means we have many heads, but we are one organism. We're one person. The moment that hot water is being poured on somebody's head, and I'm not sympathetic, I'm not part of it. He says, that's the danger. That means it's not just two heads, it's two people. And I think it's so important today. We can have disagreements, and some of those disagreements are genuine. Not only that, I may look at somebody's behavior, and I really feel that you know, they're, they're making a serious mistake with serious consequences. But instead of becoming judgmental and dismissive and scornful and toxic and negative, 
can I really try to listen to the person, try to understand them so they can understand me? And even more importantly, tune into their soul and believe in their soul and always connect to that space in them because that's ultimately what allows people to come back. It's what allows people to find their own dignity when others don't stop believing in them. So come from a place of confidence. And the more anchored you are in Torah, the more anchored you are in, in love and fear of God, and you're at Shammai, the more loving you should be, the more embracing you should be, because the more divine you are, the more you could see the divine in other people. When religion becomes about holier than thou, and I'm righteous, and you're not righteous, and I'm going to paradise, and you're going to burn in purgatory, then we really lost touch with the essence of Yiddishkeit. No, very, very true. We have to do it. Listen, the essence is is that if even if we had worshipped idolatry, we did all kinds of terrible things in the first temple period or in the second temple period, if we at least loved one another, I think this is what the rabbis say, is that God would have treated us in the same way. But if we treated others badly, there was no reason for God to overlook you know, the sins that we did if we don't tolerate other people. So that's an important lesson of even what sin is, of the hatred that we have is that we have to really be more tolerant and we have to have more love, Ahavish Yisrael. And just like the temple was destroyed because of Sinas Chinam, I think Rav Kook has said that we have to have much more love that's going to bring the redemption. Right, for sure. Now, you know, I think that sometimes somebody told me the other day, you know, when people talk too much about Avis Yisrael, it's basically because they don't like religious Jews. <laughs> it was a funny comment. But I think it's so important to be able to understand that both elements are so important. In other words, there's people who speak about love to everybody and everything. Prince version of Avis Israel doesn't come tolerance that's not based on principles. We have very powerful principles. And we have timeless tradition for and I says, HaTorah Hazu Motiyah Mechlefet, it's one of our principles, you know, we don't change the Torah based on a new fad, based on a new cultural development, or based on a new op-ed article in the New York Times, or a story on CNN. Torah is, the power of Torah is, it's eternity, it's timelessness. Shabbos was relevant 3,000 years ago, it's relevant today, it's going to be relevant in 3,000 years as well. So obviously Israel doesn't come from a sense of insecurity. We don't really believe in anything. We tolerate everybody. No. Obviously Israel comes from a much deeper idea. And that is that God's presence is everywhere and in every person. And every person has something to teach us. Every person is inspiring. Because every person is a unique reflection of God's infinity. The visage of God is carved in every human being. And if I find a person uninspiring, it's because I am not tuning in to the deeper layers of reality. And when you can really respect people in that sense, when you can really take pride in each one of your children, sometimes we have children who are not following the exact path we dreamt. Sometimes we have friends, we have nephews, we have nieces, we have grandchildren. And we allow our personal pain to eclipse the value of these people. The more you're rooted in a real relationship with God, the more you see the presence of God in each person, 
and you can really connect to them and take pride in them and love them and cherish them and embrace them and don't judge them, even if there are things you genuinely disagree with. Our guest is Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson, well-known scholar, lecturer, founder of yeshiva.net. He's a specialist in Jewish mysticism. He is a sought-out speaker around the world. When we come back, we continue for a little while longer our Tishavov conversation dealing with things that are relevant to the saddest day on the Jewish calendar. Hi, this is David Gabay, and you're listening to The Zev Brenner Show. Like us on Facebook. You're listening to Talk Line with Zev Brenner, America's premier Jewish broadcast on the air since 1981. Our guest for a little while longer, Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson. He is renowned throughout the world. He lectures uh, throughout of the globe, and uh, he's founder of the yeshiva.net. He specializes in Jewish mysticism, and uh, he certainly has been, as I mentioned, he was invited to speak by the Pentagon, the first rabbi ever to do so to their U.S. military chief of chaplains. Uh, we're getting a bunch of emails coming in. You can keep them coming, zevbrenner at gmail.com, zevbrenner at gmail.com. Rabbi Jacobson, here's what a listener writes. Please ask Rabbi Jacobson, didn't the Lubavitcher Rebbe say that we have already done enough Ahavas Chinam to have fixed up the sinus chinam? He's on, uh, that's the hatred that caused the destruction. He said we need to have Avish Yisrael to be ready for Gula and live Mashiach Dika. Look at all the Havas Chinam going on today. Hatzalach, Haverim, Chesed, Shalemis, etc., etc. Listen, there's no question that uh, in many ways there have been major, major improvements. Um, obviously, you know, we can always find flaws and challenges and there's always room for improvement and each of us has to be introspective in our own life. And if there's somebody you're not on speaking terms with, you know, this is a good time to reconsider, you know, send them an email, send them a WhatsApp, give them a call. If there's, you have a brother, a sister-in-law, a brother-in-law, a nephew, a niece, a father, a mother, an old partner, an old employer, employee, somebody in shul, we should all be on speaking terms with each other. So there's always room for improvement. There's no question that when you look at the Jewish people, despite our flaws and despite our uh, mistakes and errors, there's incredible, incredible kindness and generosity and love. I mean, look at just what happened at Surfside. I mean, how many communities came together and how much money was raised. Uh, you know, people people are present here for each other. You mentioned Hatzalah, you know, heroes extraordinary heroes and and so many others in all all communities in Israel and in America and everywhere else so there's no question about that and uh, when you study Jewish history you know we learn about some very very ugly fights and a lot of suspicion and animosity i think today in many ways there have been many improvements and part of it is you know we have matured people have realized that there's different paths People realize that there's different perspectives and we don't have to become suspicious of each other and hate each other. And yet, you know, the fact is that we are still in Gullus and uh, I certainly agree with you that it's high time that the Gula should come. But each and every one of us, I think in our own way, has to ask ourselves, is there something that I can do today to promote a deeper level of, of love and unity and connection? in my own life, in my own family, in my own community, in my own environment. Uh, thank you for that good question. Samuel writes, Chazal, the, which is the rabbis, tell us that since we cried upon hearing the report of the Miraglam, the spies, 
Hashem gave us Bechiyas Ladori, that means we were crying for generations on this night. It would seem that the Chet, the sin by the Meraglim, was the source of all the future Korbans. Elsewhere, Chazal tell us that the first Korban was caused by Shalash Averis, which means three Averis, and the second Korban by Sinas Chinam, by hating one another. How are these reflected in the Bechiyas Shalchinam? It's a great question. Uh, so what this person is asking is that there seems to be a contradiction here. And I think that, I think, perhaps one of the answers to your question, perhaps, is that what happened that night when the spies came back with their uh, horrible report about the incompetence of the Jewish people and our inability to enter our land, and we will fail and we will all be slain and die what really overtook the Jewish people was a sense of paralysis, a sense of hopelessness. Um, I mentioned before, today there's a lot of discussion about trauma. One of the devastating devastating results of trauma is I go into a place of hopelessness, repeated patterns of thought. I'm stuck in the same neural pathways. I believe that there's nothing I can do. And that was the great catastrophe when the questions the question that the Jewish people had to ask at that time was not whether we can go into the land. It's how we're going to do it, not if we're going to do it. The question became if instead of how. And they wept and wept because they felt literally stuck between a rock and a hard ball with nowhere to turn. And when we are stuck in that place... There's no room for transformation, for renewal. So in later generations, there was also major crises, whether it was idolatry, adultery, murder, hatred, because part of living is facing brokenness, facing crisis. We live in a world that is compartmentalized, that is misaligned. We live in a world where one does not see the divine presence in a manifested way. But as long as we have a fire burning in our belly, I could make a difference. I can make a difference for my life. I can make a difference for my loved ones. I can make a difference in the world. Then, within every situation, we can find the calling. The calling. What is my calling? What is my mission? But when there is that innate sense of despondency and hopelessness, and all I can do is groan and moan and sigh about how bad things are, then... We become stuck. I always tell my students, remember, there's only two choices in life. Either you're part of the problem or you're part of the solution. <laughs> there's no other choice. <laughs> there's no third choice. In every situation in Jewish life today, you know, people complain about so many things. So I tell them, you're right. You're right. Maybe you're 100% right. But here's the question you have to answer. I have to answer. We have to answer. Am I going to be part of the problem? Or am I going to be part of the solution? When the answer is I'm going to be part of the solution, everything changes because now I'm not a victim anymore. Now the question is, what am I going to be doing tonight? What am I going to be doing tomorrow morning to be part of the solution, not part of the problem? And it's a very, very good question. Uh, thank you, Sam, for really a good one. Here's the thing that I just wanted to focus on for a little bit. You know, we've been focusing and looking at the f destruction of the first temple, the second temple. But the real truth is, is that the real calamity 
And yes, as devastating this destruction of the Second Temple was, but the real loss, the real damage came after 67 years later, after the Bar Kokhba revolt, where you had the sages killed, where the Romans were just killing indiscriminately, where they shipped people to Rome. That's when the real destruction was, uh, the Bar Kokhba revolt. And Rabbi Akiva thought Rabbi Kokhba was the Messiah. He certainly held off the forces of of Rome for about five years, and he minted his own coins, and he was in control. Amazing. You had, as you said, Rabbi Jacobson, that one million or two million Jews died at the destruction of the temple, was destroyed, and yet within 60 years or 70 years, you had Barkach was able to to rout the the Roman army. They had to send troops from Britain to quell the Barkach revolt, which took five years to do so. An amazing thing, but that really was the end of Jewish life in Israel, was that period of time when the destruction of Betar. Indeed, indeed. The temple was destroyed in the year 70 after the Common Era. Some say 68, 69, but either 68, 69 or 70. The Bakochva revolt broke out approximately 60 years later in the year 130 or 132 after the Common Era until it was crushed around 135 or 136 after the Common Era through Adrian. And it was it was brutal and merciless uh, Bar Kochva himself was murdered, and approximately it's estimated more than a half a million Jews were murdered, and uh, that really was uh, that really was the end because then they saw that uh, you know Bar Kochva was not Mashiach. The the third temple would not rebuilt be rebuilt now, and it was one of the darkest, no question, one of the darkest periods of Jewish history. In fact, people don't realize that every day, every single day, we remember the Bar Kochva revolt. And that is the fourth blessing in the grace after meals. There used to be three blessings, and it was after the Bar Kochva revolt that was crushed that the sages added the blessing, Baruch HaTashem Lekinem HaLechalam HaTov, what they called HaTov, V'Hametiv, who hated one, who hated one, the last blessing of benching, grace after meals. Why? As the Talmud says, because it took years for the Roman emperor to give permission for the Jews to bury the hundreds of thousands slain in Betar. Their bodies, their corpses lay strewn in blood without permission to bury them. It was only years later that they could bury them, and they found two things. Number one, they were thankful that they could bury them, and that the bodies were there, that they could bury them. There were, there were corpses there. And they made a blessing for this, which is interesting. Like, what are you making a blessing for such a catastrophe? Like, Hatov, Hametiv, that we could bury them, that their bodies did not compose. Okay, it's nice that you could bury them, but, you know, thanks, but no thanks. I would rather have them alive. And I think it represented something fabulous for the Jewish people. And that is God was giving them what you would call a wink from heaven. He said, listen, I know this is not redemption, and I know that there's a long, dark road ahead of you, but don't think that you're not my people, and don't think you were abandoned, and don't think that you were neglected, and don't think that there is some mysterious meaning and plan in your history. Don't think that that covenant we made together at Sinai to change the world has been obliterated. You know where else there was a wink from heaven? The Torah says in Genesis that when Joseph was sold as a slave 
in the caravan that took him as a slave to Egypt. There were wonderful, fragrant spices. So the Medrash says God wanted Joseph to have an enjoyable ride to Egypt. And when I read this the first time, I'm like, thanks, but no thanks. You know, you kidnapped me. You're selling me into slavery, but you're giving me a first-class ticket on the airplane. Thank you. <laughs> Why don't you just send me back home? <laughs> the, idea of, the idea, of course, was there was a very subtle message here. You're not being sold. You're being sent. I'm with you. This is a wink from heaven. You're not alone. I know it's a challenge, but Joseph at that moment knew he was not a victim. He was a shliach. <laughs> he was sent. That's what he tells his brothers 22 years later. You know why I forgave you? Because you did not sell me. God sent me. The moment you can see your life's journey as a mission rather than a story of victimhood, it's a game changer. And at Beta, the Jewish people got that wink. So despite the grief and despite the sobs, they made a blessing and they want us to say it every day in benching. Whenever you wash for bread, you're talking about Bar Kochva and Beta. Why is that such an important moment in Jewish history? Because it showed them that even after it was over, to quote Yogi Berra, it's not over till it's over. And the Jewish people always knew that it's not over. Wonderful thought. By the way, as an aside, and now the difference of opinion, and maybe it's a minority one, but I, based on the verses in the Torah, it seems to me clear that the brothers didn't sell Joseph, didn't sell Yosef. It was right, actually that's the Rashbam. The, the Rashbam and the Cheskuni yeah. and others have said right. that. And you look at the Psukim itself because the, yes, no question. And it when makes you read so much the Psukim, sense. Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating thing that when you read the Psukim without any preconceived notions, it's that the Midianites they're the ones who pulled them out of the pit and they sell them into slavery. Which, by the way, answers some very dramatic questions. Makes life a lot easier. Makes it a lot easier because the brothers, when they come back to the pit, he's not there. And they don't know he's sold into slavery. Which means they really believe that he's dead. And that's why even when they see the grief of their father, they don't go to buy him back. Why don't they just go back to Egypt? What happens? They really think the boy is dead. They threw him into a pit and he's gone. They are certain that a cheetah, a tiger, a hyena, or a lioness killed Joseph and schlepped him away. There's no question in their mind. They don't have a clue that he's actually alive. And that's why, you know, I always wondered as a kid learning, if I was one of those tribes, and I'm speaking to the prime minister of Egypt, and he knows everything about my family, and I know that I sold them to Egypt, like, why didn't they suspect that, you know, he had a beard and didn't recognize him, fine, but why did nobody say, hey, maybe he's the man? But they really thought he was dead, and that's why when they realized that it's Joseph, they were shocked. So that, the story actually has a lot of merit based on that view of the Rajbam, that they never sold them into slavery. Of course, Rashi has a different interpretation. Well, Rashi has, that has, that has to gyrate and say that, that it was Reuven's turn to go serve his father. Right. So he leaves him, he wants to save him, and he leaves him to go you know, miles right. and miles away, which I never understood. 
because it it doesn't float it doesn't flow easily into the narrative. But if you say that that he was sold by others and the brothers didn't know that right. he was sold, everything fits in as you said, just fits him beautifully. And that's why, like like you said, when they came face to face with him, they even though they said, well, yeah. they didn't recognize his brother. He had a beard. Right. He spoke Egyptian. And I say to myself, if I haven't seen a brother in twenty some years, right. and he had a beard and he spoke French, I wouldn't recognize him. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> I, I just find right. it hard, right? But 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 if you take this approach, everything just flows so much right. smoother. It, 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 it's a it's a fascinating approach. It was suggested by the Rajabam, who was Rashi's grandson, and who he Shmuel ben Meir. He was Rashi's grandson. He learned on his on 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 the lat on the on the let with the, at the feet of his grandfather, and he. He writes that he once heard from his grandfather, Rashi, that if he would have had time, he could write many new commentaries on Chumash because every day there are new levels of interpretation. So that's why he argues very often with his, uh, with his grandfather. Yeah, there's even, uh, we're talking about, there's even an interesting interpretation. This is already suggested by a, 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 a Safer, it was in New York in the 1920s, who said that Joseph suspected, the question is, why didn't Joseph send a telegram or a letter, or a messenger, or a fax, or an Instagram, right? Yeah, twenty-two years. Okay, maybe when he was in prison, he could not. But you're the prime minister; you could send a messenger to your father and say, "Tati, I'm alive." It's a very, very difficult question. So, one very interesting answer, certainly many people disagree, is that Joseph may have suspected. Some say Joseph suspected that his father was behind it. That deep down, his father may have arranged it, and therefore. He could not right go back to his father because he felt that Jacob wanted this to happen. And only when Judah told him how his father has been grieving for 22 years, and if he loses Benjamin, he will go down straight into the grave, Joseph realized that he made an error and that Jacob really was completely innocent. It's certainly an interesting perspective, even though, of course, many disagree with it. Because Rabbi, of Rabbi how... Yol Ben Nun has been saying that, uh, yeah. Contemporary, but the truth is, the question that he, I believe he raised was when Joseph was being sold by the Medianites, the Ishmaelim, and, and the story is very confusing. Who sold them? They, I think it's done very, very. Rashi says he was sold many times. Many times. What, what, what I have shared, and I, I, I think, uh, I think there, there may be some merit to this, is that Joseph couldn't send a message to his father, and there's a very profound idea here. Of course, he could have told Jacob, hey, Tati, I'm alive. And Jacob would say, wow, let's throw a party. And the family would meet, and they would throw a big feast, and everybody would smile, they would take pictures, it would be all over WhatsApp. But Joseph would know that the infection was not healed. Our family is a fractured family. We're a broken family. I was sold into slavery by my brothers. We may unite for the pictures, and everybody will talk about it. It'll be a front-page story in the newspapers. Ev Brenner will interview us on the Mitzvah Shabbos program. It'll be great. But deep down, when we look back to our homes, the infection is still there. Because Joseph understood there's something broken in our family. And it's only after taking the brothers through the ringer and really having them reassess their lives and their priorities that Joseph at some point feels... We have matured, and only then can they become a people. So I think that's really what he was thinking about. He was a visionary. He was an extraordinary man, and he realized that you can't compromise and create short-term solutions that in the long term will only prove to be detrimental because the same thing will happen again. And I think it's true throughout our history. You know, sometimes we create Band-Aids 
oh, there's a problem here. We'll put a bandaid, another bandaid, another bandaid. No, 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 no. You know, look, look at Surfside. I mean, it's very difficult to say this. You know, look at Miram, look at Surfside, look at Carlin. You can have the most beautiful structure in the world, you know, right near the beach. But if the foundations are weak, don't get so mesmerized by the outer beauty, by the fact that it's one of the most expensive condos in Florida. It's beautiful. It's stunning. The maintenance is incredible. But if the foundations are not powerful, oh yeah, yeah, we all have to be afraid. And I think it's true. It's such a it's such a tragic. You know, sometimes we put in so much effort in cosmetics. We want everything to look good. Our communities to look good. Our schools to look good. Our families to look good. The wedding to look good. The shidduch to look good. The kids should look good. Everybody should be dirty. And we sometimes ignore crumbling foundations. Joseph understood that. If you are not going to heal those foundations, if we don't have the courage to ignore cosmetics a little bit and get to a core level of healing, we're in trouble. And I hear what you're saying, and it sounds right, but the only thing that I would like to maybe respectfully disagree is it didn't really help very much because at the end of the day, the brothers and Yosef didn't really get along so great. After the Yaakov died, Jacob died, there was tension there as in the conversation. So they were always suspicious. One that was never really a great family-loving relationship between Joseph and his brother. In fact, one of the commentators says... You're not, you're, not, you're not disagreeing. You have a good point because we know that the conflict continued in later generations. The first split of the Commonwealth after Solomon died he was succeeded by his son Rechavam, and the kingdom split. There were two kings. Rechavam came from the tribe of Ephraim, who was a son of Joseph, and Rechavam was the successor of Solomon, who was, of course, from the tribe of Yehuda. And there became a split in the Jewish people, what led to the destruction of the first temple, because the, the nation was weak. The nation was split into two. You had the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom, and ultimately the ten tribes of the northern kingdom were exiled by the Assyrians, and they ultimately assimilated, and they have been lost to the Jewish people since then. And there were only two tribes left. So that split between Joseph and Judah resurfaces later in Jewish history, and that's where the Talmud speaks about two messiahs, you know, Mashiach ben Yosef, the Mashiach the son of Yosef, Mashiach ben David. So you're 100% right that the reconciliation at the time was not complete. In fact, as a Svasemis, Svasemis was the second Gera Rebbe. He died in 1905. And he says that the Torah says, Joseph couldn't contain himself. He couldn't hold back. And he sent everybody out. And he said, I'm Joseph. The Svasemis says that it's almost like the Torah is lamenting. Oh, he couldn't contain himself anymore. He couldn't hold back his emotions. We wish he did because the tikkun was not complete yet. We wish he did. That's what he says. He says the Torah is almost like like sighing. It's like like in Yiddish they say a krech. The Torah is a krech. The Torah is, is sighing. Like Yosef, why didn't you hold yourself in a little longer until everything would be ripe for complete reconciliation? So there's different levels of reconciliation, 100%. And uh, and I guess there's, you know, some of the last, last, last fragments of that reconciliation. It's our job to complete. I think most of it has been complete, but there's probably still a few little, little, uh, little, little chips that uh, 
you know, we got to restore. Let's take some phone calls. 212-769-1925. Yaakov in Midwood, your question for Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson. Yes, uh, I'm looking at the book right now as to who sold him, who sold Yosef. But I want to talk to you about non-recognition first. He was, uh, according to the Medrash, was wearing a visor, crown. He did not speak to them. He whispered to his son, who was the interpreter, and the, uh, and his son then spoke to them, then, then spoke back to his father in Egyptian, and that's why they didn't recognize his voice, they didn't recognize his face, his face was in a visor, and so there's common sense as to why he was, so uh, you wouldn't have recognized your brother either, because he didn't speak directly to them. Number two, uh, after the um, Yehuda told him, uh, uh, our father will go down alive into the, you know, Sha'ol. Uh, and then when he revealed him to you, they said, um, I am Joseph, your brother. Tell me, is our father alive? He was told that his father is alive. So why is he that? If he thought his father was behind it, he, he was talking about the Agmas Nefesh that his father went to. You need to tell me right. you're worried about Binyamin, and you're asking me, if, and uh, you, and uh, um, and is your, what about your father? What Agnes Nefesh did you give him for these 22 years? And you're telling me you're worried that he's going to go down in the show? But when you see, you didn't worry about it. And in the pasuk it says, um, right here by Yama Yehuda al Achiv, Ma bet kinaro gezochinu b'chisinu is small. Lachu v'nim kaveru lishmeilim. Then it says, they lifted him up out of the bar and they took off his kisoynet and they dipped it in blood. So they did it. They're as guilty as sin. Right. Yeah. So these are all good comments and good questions, which is why there are different interpretations and different perspectives. Yes. Thank you. The way I see it, it's clear that they were guilty. And what did they do to their dad? I was given off for 22 years. Who would do that to a father? Today? Right. But, but I'm saying the Rajbam the Raj, the Raj, the Raj is the one who says that they did not sell them. Just realize that it's not. And the Fiskuni and some others. And by the way, uh, forgive me, but I personally believe. If you look at the Psukim, that the Rashbam makes the most sense, because if you look at the actual words, it says, first of all, they went off to eat, and it says that the caravan of Medianites, it wasn't even the Yishmael, they contemplated selling him to the Yishmaelim. And the Torah says that a caravan of Medianites came, and they drew Yosef, and they sold him to the Yishmaelim. Vayim shechu, vayim shechu. They, yeah, seems, they pulled him. Yeah. So, they, she has a very good essay in a Chama Leibowitz in her books on Chama. She has a very good essay. By they paid it to what you heard. What about taking off his? No, 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 no. That, 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 they don't, oh, that part doesn't say that. No, no, you're mixing up two things. Yeah, they they, they clearly came into the pit. The question is, who took him out of the pit and brought him to Egypt? Did the tribes take him out of the pit and sold him as a slave? Or it was the Midianites who heard a boy crying, and they're the ones who drew him out of the pit? That's the so Rashi says it was the tribes. The Rashbam argues that's. In terms of your other comment, by the way, I wasn't referring to his conversations with them. I was referring to the fact that when they came the second time with Benjamin, mm-hmm. it says that Joseph placed them each according to their ages. Mm-hmm. They were astounded. They were astonished. So mm-hmm. I always wondered why nobody had a hunch 
that maybe he knew the if somebody knew my family's secrets I would ask myself, maybe it's my lost brother. That's, that's, that's according to the Rashbam, it makes sense because mm-hmm. they really thought he was dead. And it, it, it's certainly different perspectives, and it's certainly a fascinating and, uh, and uh, extraordinary. But, but thank you, thank Yaakov, for really raising some interesting questions. So obviously, there are many. There's Shivan Panam Latora, the seventy facets, and they're probably all right. So. They're all right, yeah. But he did. But he did wear. It does say in the Medrash that his face was covered. He was wearing a visor. So right, 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 but that's a matter. I'm not sure. That, and the point yeah, is, that, okay. and, and the, the, the Torah says Yehuda whispered into his ear, so they're close to to him. And you know, you can tell. Yes, if you're wearing a mask like during COVID, maybe it's hard to tell. But generally speaking, if you're looking somebody in the face and you're having conversation with them, you'd be able to them. He talked to his son. He whispered. To his son, and they, his son, but how did That's there was of opinion if he wished to the interpreter, if he wished to the because even though he didn't speak the language, but he figured he would, he felt that they, according to the Medrash, according to the comment, he thought that the interpreters were saying things wrong, so therefore he wanted to speak directly to Yosef, right? Mm-hmm. So, so that's why he whispered directly into his ear um, in Parshas Vayigash. But you raised some very good questions, and, and I appreciate you sharing that was, with us. How could they be over? Uh, how could they be so cruel to their father? Would you do this to your father? Would I do that? That's no. a horrible thing. But, but the very fact that they want that they contemplated selling a brother, you know, and, and by the way, that's why the Torah keeps, in my opinion, why the Torah keeps it everything of confusion that, you know, mm-hmm. Midianites, Midianites, Yishmaelim, Egypt, who's, who's selling who? Why is that? They purposely, the Torah purposely wants to shroud it in a mystery because even if they didn't sell him directly, they mm-hmm. were still responsible for what happened. Very painful episode, but it's also painful for us how we view them because it puts, it, it's, it's not the way to speak and behave normally. It's not a way to behave. And by the way, and that's why, you know, it's very appropriate for Tishabov where you read about the 10 Asura Harugi Makos, the 10 sages uh-huh. that were killed, and it all revolves around the selling of Joseph by the brothers where the emperor says there's never been a collection of sages such as you, and therefore he executes them for the selling of Joseph, even though it's the time frame is some of them were at the time of the Bar Kochwa revolt, some of them at the time of the temple. There, there's a, But I think it's just teaching us a lesson that when we have hatred for one another, it leads to all kinds of problems that takes generations to cure. They may have been Gogulim. They may have been the brothers themselves. Okay. The Gemara, Rabbi Yishaya Horowitz, the the great rabbi of Frankfurt, Prague, and Jerusalem, in his in his book Shnei Luchas Habris, says they were reincarnations of the uh, there, there we, yeah, that's, the, the interesting question is Rabbi Akiva, because there were only nine there were only nine brothers who sold Joseph, and yet ten sages who were murdered. So, but it was only nine, and he says something incredibly powerful. Ruben, Ruben, Ruben didn't want to sell it. No, but you're talking about Benjamin wasn't there. Benjamin wasn't there, and Yosef, of course, was the victim. So he right. only had nine brothers involved in the sale. Right. Right? Absolutely. So why were there ten, ten, ten Jews, ten sages that were slain? No, the Shalah the shalo says something very intense. <laughs> he says, oh, this is very heavy. He says that it says that the Shvatim wanted a minion. So who did they add as a tenth? <laughs> yeah, good. They added Hashem. <laughs> In other yeah, words, they, yeah, they felt they felt up. that they were doing God's work, and Rabbi Akiva was a convert 
who's considered a child of God directly because he doesn't come from the lineage of the Jewish people, and that was Rabbi Akiva. And Rabbi Shimshon Astropoler, who was killed in the 1648 Chmelanetsky pogroms, Gimel mm-hmm. of 1648, Rabbi Shimshon Astropoler, the great Polish Kabbalist and sage, says that at the end of Bechukhoise, we speak about Koil Asheyavar Tachas Hashevet, Hashavet Haasiri, Incredibly, he interprets that whole verse that each one of the t- of the nine sages killed was Tachas Hashevet, was corresponding one of the brothers, one of the tribes. The tenth one, Rabbi Akiva, is Kaidesh Lashem. Wasn't it his father? The Rambam, Maimonides, in his introduction to Mishnah Torah, writes that he was his father, Yosef, Akiva ben Yosef. His father was a Gerd Sebek. Yeah, his father, yeah. not him. No, but they, yeah. they, I think that some say that he also was a... Some say some say. himself was a gear. In fact, really? it's censored in many of our Gemaras, but in Sanhedrin, Sadegvav, there's a version that the Akiva was a, a, a descendant of Sisra. Sisra oh, yeah. was one of the greatest arch enemies of the Jewish people, and he was really? a descendant of Sisra. According to Rabbi Shlomo Avinar, I believe he's a descendant. He came from, from, uh, from uh, Amalek. And Rav Meir was a descendant of Nero, who was a descendant of Esau. Right. So, I mean, well, you have that the Talmud does say, Mibnei Banov Shalhaman, Lomun Torah, Mibnei Brak, and who represents Mibnei <laughs> Brak? Rabbi Akiva, right? Right. That's what Shlomo Avinar writes in one of his farm, and that uh, that's uh, Rabbi Akiva. So, obviously, he's, he was somebody who was very, very special, and uh, he's... And, and, and look, you know, we, and, and he was one of the ten that were killed by the Romans. And I just find his whole lifestyle, uh, just, you know, maybe just to digress for a moment, Rabbi Jacobson, his life was so interesting where he was poor and he learned and he, his wife sent him away to learn, but yet he inherited fortunes from both from his father-in-law and also he married the widow of Turnus Rufus. He got another treasure from that, too. He was Maguire. And by the way, uh, I had to say this, but looking from the Roman point of view, being the devil's advocate, uh, he was a supporter of, Rabbi Akiva was a supporter of the Bakhba revolt. So the Romans considered him an arch enemy. You have to understand that point of view, that he was a supporter of Bakhba, Rabbi Akiva. And that's the Romans considered, that's why they killed him. You got it? Rabbi Jackson, you want to comment to that? No, listen, Rabbi Akiva, the Ramam Ram, Ram famously says Rabbi Akiva was the no Kalim. He was a great, great supporter of Barkochva. We know that from the Gemara. Um, the, but you have to understand that the revolt of Barkochva came, the, the cruelty and the mercilessness of the Romans knew no bounds. So it's very important to understand. I'm, I'm just telling you how the Romans knew yeah. him. But they didn't, they didn't have any excuse. Uh, anyway, Yaakov, thank you. They I'm didn't saying have any the excuse. crucifixions, I mean, what they did, the torturing of men and women and children. Horrible, horrible. You read Josephus and you read the Madrasham. I mean, you read the history books. It's uh, The fact that we survived and we're here today and the Roman Empire is gone, is really, despite all the pain that we went through, it's, it's yeah, they stupendous. produced many gerims. and and they, Romans produced many gerims at that time. Isn't that funny? It's an oddity, you know. That and Uncleus, right? Uncleus was uh, his uncle was Titus of Russia. Exactly, exactly. And many many Romans they they fell away. They came over to the Nero converted. Okay. That's why he said the Rome burned while Nero fooled. 
<laughs> he disappeared. Okay, there you go. All right, Yako, thank you so much. Uh, have an easy fast. In the few moments we have remaining, Rabbi Jacob, I, I just saw an incredible thought from Rabbi Nachman Kahana, the rabbi of the uh, young Israel, the old city of Jerusalem. And according to the Gemara, the Babylonian invaders invaded the temple on a Sunday. And the Levium made a mistake. Instead of saying the psalm of the day, Shur Shalyom, of Sunday, they said the, the psalm of Wednesday. Ditto in the second temple, when the Roman invaders came in, and again, they made a mistake and didn't say the Shur Shalyom of Sunday, but said the one of Wednesday. Most common thought would be because on Wednesday we talk the the psalm talks about God of vengeance. However, Rabbi Nachman Khan has said that at the moment when they were going to when the Kohanim and the Levim were losing the temple, they were given a vision, and he said that the answer to this question was in 1967 because the Israeli forces took over the the Temple Mount on a Wednesday. So at the moment when they were losing the temple, they were given a vision when the hmm. temple be once again in Jewish hands. Wow. Fascinating. Any any closing thoughts? I would just mention uh, you you mentioned this to me on Friday. I went Friday to a funeral of a teacher of mine. I thought it would be uh, worthwhile to mention. Oh his yes, name. yes, his name yes, was, yes. His name was Rabbi Yoel Khan, and uh, in the Chabad world, he was considered one of the senior, if not its most senior, uh, scholar and scribe, and uh, he died at the age of 91 this past Thursday, and he was buried a few feet away from the late Lubavitcher Rebbe in the Montefiore Cemetery in Queens. And it's just interesting to note, because uh, he he grew up in Russia, and then he moved to Israel in the 30s as a, as a little kid, and then he came by boat from, from Israel to New York in 1950. What he did not know was that he left the shores of, of, of Haifa the morning after the death of the previous, the sixth Lubavitcher Rebbe in 1950. He didn't know, they didn't know the news yet. He didn't know the news. So they went off on boat. And when they came to America two weeks later, they found out that the Lubavitcher Rebbe, the Lubavitcher Rebbe has passed away. So the purpose of their coming seemed in vain. So he consulted with the man who would become the future Lubavitcher Rebbe, and she just go back to Israel, to his parents, to his community, to his yeshiva. And the Rebbe told him, listen, my father-in-law, the Rebbe, told you to come. <laughs> he knew what's going to happen, and he told you to come, so you should stay. And as it turned out, that as the new Lubavitcher Rebbe assumed leadership, Rabbi Yoel Khan stood there and literally memorized and transcribed almost every single talk of the Lubavitcher Rebbe over the next 42 years until 1992 when the Rebbe took ill. And maybe with the exception of one Fabrengen that he missed, I don't think he missed uh, ever a Shabbos or holiday address or talk of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. So uh, really for the Chabad world and everybody affected by the Chabad world, his death on Thursday is like really the end of an era. Wow, no, he certainly was. Now, didn't you also transcribe some of the lectures of the yeah, Lubavitcher yeah. Rebbe? So, he, so Rabbi, Rabbi Yael Khan, who, who, who died at 91, he was like the chief oral scribe, but every few years he would gather around him a group of yeshiva students that he felt were academically and intellectually suited for this job. So my brother, Simon Jacobson, was part of that team, and when I came of age, I also joined that team. 
And that was the last few years of the Lubavitcher Rebbe's talks. But he was what's called the chief chayzer, which was, Chose, was like right. the chief oral scribe. These were oral scribes because the Lubavitcher would speak for hours on, on Shabbos and holidays. And obviously there were no recording devices because it's Shabbos and holidays. And the Rebbe could speak for hours and hours and hours. And these were profound, profound presentations on all parts of Torah and Judaism. Very, very scholastic. So uh, he really was a brilliant man. And the team had this responsibility and privilege of, of memorizing everything and transcribing everything. And from this, you have the 100 or 200 volumes of the Lubavitcher Rebbe's teachings. Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson is our guest. You know what? Let's just go for a few minutes more when we come back. Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson, as you heard, is a noted scholar, a lecturer. He speaks around the world, and uh, whether and mysticism is a specialty, but he knows all aspects of Judaism, has to deal with all kinds of questions. He started the yeshiva.net. When we come back, we'll try to take a couple more of your phone calls. And now your host. Keep it locked right here. Talkline Radio and TV with Zeb Brenner is just phenomenal. Everybody concerned about the Jewish community should listen and watch. He has the best guests. He asks the most interesting questions. He's always so well prepared. It's talk radio and television from a Jewish point of view at its very best. To advertise on the Talkline Network and Talkline's email and social media blasts reaching over 70,000 people, please call 212-769-1925, extension 100. That's 212-769-1925, extension 100. Or email info at talklinenetwork.com. You're listening to Talk Line with Zev Brenner, America's premier Jewish broadcast on the air since 1981. You're listening to Talk Line with Zev Brenner, America's premier Jewish broadcast on the air since 1981. Our final stretch, Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson and our guests were looking at Tishabov and what we should be commemorating and some of the things that we should really be thinking about on this a very, very sad day on the Jewish calendar, which, as we said at the beginning, has all elements of of positivity. It's going to be called a holiday. Um, but right now we have to live, I guess, with the, the fact that it's a morning day, a very, very sad day on the, on the Jewish calendar. Maybe, Rabbi Jacobson, you get lots of different questions from different people. Um, what's some of the common questions you've gotten regarding Tisha B'Av? I was once, uh, I was once speaking to a group of teenagers. It was during the nine days. You can hear me? Hello? Yes, I can. Go ahead. Yes. Uh-huh. And, and they were very perturbed by the fact that they couldn't eat meat. <laughs> you know, they wanted to eat meat. They wanted to have some rib steak. And uh, this was an Orthodox Jewish camp. And they couldn't eat meat. <laughs> they were very upset. And, you know, one of the boys, smart kid, he's like, I don't understand. This thing happened 1,900 years ago. And, yes, it's sad and it's tragic. But why in the world, in the 21st century, I want to eat a piece of steak? I want to drink a cup of wine. <laughs> why do I have to suffer? What's the logic here? It just makes me makes me miserable. It makes me feel like I don't like this whole religion. This is what he's, what he's sharing. And it was certainly an interesting question to ponder because, you know, for all of us who grew up in camp, we always knew the nine days were always difficult days, Right. We didn't go swimming, and there were no trips, and they have to they have to invent all these types of entertainments, and of course the music stopped playing in camp, 
it was just an element of, of a somber, solemn element. And as kids, you know, you go away in the summer, you want to have fun. It's like, why do we have to bear the burdens, like not enough Jewish suffering? Well, I think purposely yeah. the nine days and the three weeks are in the summertime. It's not any other time. I think it's made because summertime people are more into frivolous activities and going away. So maybe it's to bring a somber note during this time period. Right. Yeah. So, so as somebody once told me, you know, we finally have a few weeks in the summer. <laughs> right. We could relax. They had to ruin that. So I, I looked at these kids and I said, you know, it's a good question. It's an important question. And I'm just going to share with you one thought. And I saw that it resonated. It resonated with them. And I said, listen, I just want you to understand what we're doing right now. We live almost 2,000 years later, literally. What happened over the last 2,000 years? What happened? Everything changed. <laughs> I mean, it changes in terms of civilization. On our planet, the last 2,000 years, we're incredible. We just changed in the last 100 years. Are mind-boggling. Never mind, the last five hundred years, a thousand years, two thousand years. You know, America is a few hundred years old. <laughs> French Revolution, a few hundred years, and you're dealing here with a people that's thousands of years old. And I said, listen, we could ignore what happened, and we can eat meat, and we can drink wine, and we can take haircuts, and we can uh, enjoy water sports and so forth. But I want you to know the gift you would be giving up. The gift that you would be giving up is a link to a story that began 4,000 years ago, and it's still going strong. You know, you could look at yourself as an isolated young man or woman growing up in the United States of America, trying to create a life for yourself, or you could see yourself in the context of an eternal and timeless people that for thousands of years has survived through thick and thin through every conceivable crisis and tragedy, and yet emerged with strong families and a strong identity and strong values with a vision to transform the landscape of planet Earth, literally, to fill this world with divine awareness like the water covers the sea. A nation that in every generation attracted the hate and the venom of the most evil and heinous dictators, tyrants, despots, monarchs and governors, as it still attracts the venom of those people, whether in Iran or Syria or Afghanistan or Pakistan, etc., etc., Gaza. It tells you about the power of this people, the sacredness of the people, the holiness of the people, a people that literally in every generation stood at the forefront of the moral voice, the moral conversation, leading and inspiring the moral conversation of mankind. And I said, I look at this custom not to eat meat as basically a statement. We're not living in a vacuum. We are continuing a story. The Jews who were murdered 2,000 years ago are living in us. They're living in our shuls, in our study halls, in our homes, in our minds, in our texts, in our conversations. And during those nine days, when they were slain mercilessly, I could make believe like nothing happened. It's 2,000 years comfortably in America. We can all eat steak with ketchup and French fries and add some sushi and a cup of wine. But I say, you know what? I would prefer to say, no, these nine days are meaningful to me because when my ancestors suffered so much during these nine days, 
I'm alive, thank God, we're alive. But you know what? I won't touch that piece of steak just to pay tribute to all those Jews and say that I will continue their story. And I said, I think that powerful connection, it's worth to maintain it, even if I have to sacrifice a rib steak for supper. Now, well, you, you know mean, what? And what did they say? They were like, their applause. They gave me such an applause, and I realized, you know, Herman Wook. You remember Herman Wook? The late sure, the great, great, great writer. Yeah, right. So Herman Wook in the 1950s once tells Lubavitcher Rebbe, of blessed memory, to Lubavitcher Rebbe, I'm listening to your vision for American Jews. Do you think you're dreaming? Do you think you can tell American Jews to do anything? This is the 1950s. And the Rebbe tells them, Mr. Wook, he says, American youth, you can't tell them to do anything. You can explain to them to do everything. And I realized that when we speak to the souls of our children, they get it. I could have told them, you know, you're just a bunch of spoiled brats. This is the law in Shulchan Aruch, and just listen to your elders and stop asking stupid, bratty, narcissistic questions. And then they would have said, okay, you know, another one. <laughs> another rabbi who doesn't understand us. But when I spoke to their souls, to their idealism, they were in. They got it. It was very moving for me to see that. Tell me, in the few moments we have remaining, is I know that we carry the see the every day from the National Committee for the Friends of Jewish Education, but from what I understand, Lubavitch is not big in having meat see where you have here a see and eat meat. Because you can <laughs> right. do it, you so, can do it every day. I mean, you can have a see and have meat every day. There's, right, so there's a way right, of getting right, around right. it. I live here in Muncie and I have two neighbors, and they made a see on different nights, and they had huge parties with meat and wine. It happens to be that the custom of the fifth Chabad Rebbe, whose name was Rabbi Shalom Ber Shneus and the Rebbe Rashab, he died in 1920, he had a custom of making a seum every night, but he still would not eat meat and wine. This was his stringency that became part of Chabad tradition. But that's just a particular stringency. Halachically, you're allowed to eat meat. And that's what they do in many camps and in many communities. Right, so maybe the but solution... The point, to the, the, yeah, the but the point, point is, point is that you want, you want, you're teaching them a lesson. That's what you're trying to teach them. Say they have a lesson, that's number one. And number two, it's about, it's, it's the idea that even when they're eating meat with a seum, they're eating meat because, in a way, that seum, the fact that they finished the tractate of Gemara, is really the defeat of the destruction. It's the defeat of Rome. It's the defeat of Babylonia. The fact that Jews are learning Gemara today. What are the chances, right? An Aramaic text, an Aramaic text composed 1,700 years ago the syntax, the structure, the grammar, the language, the style, completely alien <laughs> to the sensibilities and to the flavors and to the laws of literature and the styles of literature of the 21st century. And yet thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands of Jews pick up the text and they discuss it and they learn it and they argue and they ask and they answer and they finish it and they make a film. That itself represents Netzach Yisrael, the eternity of Israel and the defeat of those forces that undermine and destroy the Beis HaMikdash. You know, the Talmud says in Gitten that Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, who was the leading sage of the time, he met Vespasian, and Vespasian was impressed by him, and he asked him what he would like as a favor, and Rabbi Yochanan asked him three things, a doctor for Rebbe and to spear the dynasty of Ram Gamliel, and also to spear the city of Yavna, where there was the yeshiva, the Sanhedrin, the yeshiva, and people were critical of him, Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Yosef. They said, you should have asked him for the temple. 
thought that would be ineffective, so he just asked him for Yavna. But one of the fascinating things is that through that, really, Rome signed its own death certificate. <laughs> Vespasian didn't realize that by giving Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai permission to keep the Torah alive in Yavna, he was guaranteeing the timeless eternity of the Jewish people. So this very same man who burned Jerusalem, Vespasian and his son Titus, who did did everything we're mourning today, came from Vespasian and Titus, he was the same man who also ultimately wrote the death sentence of the Roman Empire and the certificate of survival for the Jewish people. Except they reneged on it. They reneged on because they tried to eradicate the the study of Torah by 60 years later, that's what right, led to the Barakach right. revolt, where they revolted right. against the excesses of the exactly. Roman barbarism, but exactly. also stopping, so they went back on right. it. Exactly. That the Talmud says that some had not to move into 10 different locations, go into exile, and ultimately it was dissolved. Ultimately it was dissolved, but the, the obviously the, the learning was not. And the fact is, you know... Uh, the fact is that it's, it's, it's really incredible. It's incredible. Rabbi Akiva was murdered. Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel was murdered. Literally, Rabbi Shmuel Kayan Gadol was murdered. Rabbi Hanina ben Shadim was murdered. Rabbi Yudha ben Baba, the tenth. And yet we learn their teachings. Rabbi Akiva's ideas are on the lips of every Jewish child. It means he's, he, which means he's still alive. He's still alive. Rabbi we're out of time, so we appreciate your really being with giving us some, really some great insight into Tishabov. People can go to the yeshiva.net. My honor and privilege. And my, we, honor, my honor and privilege. And may we begin, we, be, we spoke about the seeds of redemption, so the birth of Mashiach on Tishabov. So after so many years, may we experience that birth in a very real and vivid way, personally and cosmically. Amen, amen. Rabbi Y.Y. Jagan noted R-rated scholar, and you can catch me at yeshiva.net. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Thanks for listening. For continuous Jewish programs, hawklinenetwork.com or our 24-hour-a-day listen line at 641-741-0389. For past shows, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, YouTube, Instagram, and all major podcast platforms, or jewishpodcast.org. Thanks for listening to the TalkLineNetwork.com. TalkLine Network Radio, America's longest-running Jewish broadcast network, the voice of the Jewish community.